Welcome to The Favorites, the podcast from the Action Network. I am Chad Millman. On today's podcast, NFL free agency, not the coronavirus, not the coronavirus's impact on sports betting. My guest is already giggling. Just straight free agency, grading the signings. (laughs) Which signing will lead to great bets? Barnwell, you can't laugh yet. Which signings will lead to great performances? Which will lead to great player props? Which sign has got a lot of pub or not great at all? Joining me to break it all down as if I've given it away. The king of chart beats, ESPN.com's lead football analyst, a man who has studied more film than Roger Ebert, Mr. Bill Barnwell. How you doing, buddy? I Can I get king of chart beat on my resume, a business card? That would be very lucrative for me if I were actually the king of chart beat. It's a very inside joke for anyone who follows media and knows what chart beat is. Chart beat is a analytics platform that ESPN uses and a lot of sort of large media websites use to understand real-time traffic to your site. And whenever a story of Barnwells would get posted, usually Monday mornings or Monday afternoons on ESPN.com, Sharpie would explode because the entire world is reading Bill Barnwell's story. So if you got that, you could have a nameplate. <laughs> I know you, you live with your girlfriend. Maybe she can have it made for you. That could be something exciting. That could be a nice little gift. Why not a clown at, at some point? And I'm not going outside for a while. You're quarantined. You can get anything you want. Just have it made at home. <laughs> I will get my 3D printer right on it. No, I wish I had one. Maybe you could get it just to make yourself a crown. Exactly. See, now we're thinking. Explain to people why you're quarantining yourself. Okay, so I was originally supposed to go to Paris last week from New York. Our, our dog sitter is in New Jersey because we used them when we both lived in New York and love the dog sitter. So we drive up to New York, drop off the dog, and originally going to Paris. That got canceled because Paris was not yet at the point of being shut down, but like it was on the way. So we changed our trip to go to Austin, Texas, because we said, oh, you know, we both love Austin. South by Southwest got canceled. That's a real bummer. You know, it hurt the uh, economy there. So let's go support, you know, the businesses in Austin and go see some friends in Austin. That was our second plan. And then we had a couple days in New York before the trip to Austin. And over those couple of days, it became quite clear, no, we are not going to be traveling to Austin or anywhere. We're going to be going straight home. So we you know, rented a car, picked up our dog, drove back to Washington where I live. And that was that. But that was less than 14 days ago. And we were in New York. So we are currently self-quarantining where I am. Honestly, it's not that much different. This week, I would be sitting here grading things anyway. <laughs> so like, I am one of the least affected people by uh, this quarantine and by the uh, isolation period here in America. Because I would just be sitting on my couch grading things typically anyway. I don't mind social distancing, honest to God. It really is like one of those things where Seth Wickersham, front of both of ours, he just came over to my house and we had a catch up. He stood in the driveway and I stood 20 feet away on my front steps. And I didn't mind it at all. It's the first person I've honestly seen in about 10 days outside of my <laughs> It's great. It's, not, it's really not that bad. I mean, there's obviously, you know, the other stuff is awful, but the thing we can do to help is remarkably easy in terms of just staying put and not seeing other people. I can just text people. I've had some phone calls. It's fantastic. All right, Bill, your social quarantine is going to be our gain because the more you're grading, the more content you put out. Let's get to the main thing. The main thing. I went through your entire file of grading off-season moves. The entire file going back to February 15th. It is massive, it is comprehensive, and I have no doubt that everybody has looked at it, but if they haven't, they have to because it is full of gems like this. I made a note of this because I thought it was so funny. 
giving the Jets a D minus for signing George Fant to a 30-year, $30 million deal. This was your line. The Jets desperately need offensive linemen to try to protect Sam Darnold, but I'm not entirely sure Fant is one. <laughs> D minus for George Fant. You know, and it's funny because I've been really positive mostly about the Jets' move this offseason. It's like the one really negative criticism I've had of the Jets is that Fant deal. Um, this is a guy who's a basketball player. George Fant is a guy who, you know, was a spot starter for the Seahawks, started one year at left tackle and was pretty widely criticized, but almost in that way of, oh, well, he doesn't even belong out there because he's a basketball player being pushed to play left tackle for poor Russell Wilson. Then he sat for pretty much three years outside of a few spot starts here and there towards ACL. And it's now getting paid by the Jets probably to be Sam Darnold starting left tackle unless they draft a guy to play left tackle, which is, you know, if you're trying to evaluate Sam Darnold, if you want to, you know, believe in Sam Darnold, if you want to play Sam Darnold in fantasy football or daily fantasy football, having a theoretical left tackle, uh, maybe a, a arbitrary left tackle, it seems very bad if you are counting on Sam Darnold in any way. I counted two A grades, one A and one A minus. Can you tell me who got the two A's that I'm talking about? I can, 100%. Philip Rivers got an A, and Brian Poole of the Jets got an A. No, no, that's not what I oh. saw. I what didn't see. Philip Rivers got a B plus. Tom Brady got an A. Drew Brees got an A minus. Oh, Drew Brees, yes. Excuse me, I'm sorry. I know your material and, better than you, Barnwell. You do. That's not out of the question. I've written 99 of these so far. So <laughs> they tend to blur together at this point. I'm a tough grader. And, and I think that's borne out by when you look at the history of NFL free agency, it's pretty bad. I mean, think about, again, let's go with the Jets. How many people were lauding the Jets for signing Le'Veon Bell, C.J. Mosley, Jamison Crowder? The year before it was Trumaine Johnson. They almost signed Anthony Barr. How many of those moves panned out for the Jets? Zero. That's not good. And that's a lot of those are the best guys. If those are the best players, imagine what the kind of okay players are doing. So, you know, could someone give five or six more A grades? Yeah, sure. It wouldn't be you know that big of a difference between a B plus or a B and an A or an A minus. But I tend to think these things don't really work out. It's not the best way to build a football team. So I'm going to be kind of harsh. I think a C plus for me is sort of an average grade. And I think some people take that as a negative. So why did you give Brady an A? I mean, start with the off-field stuff, right? You know, Brady's going to sell season tickets. They're going to sell a billion Brady jerseys, both the current jersey, the creamsicle jersey, whatever jersey Tom Brady is wearing, they're going to sell a million of. Um, they're going to sort of solidify that franchise in Florida for years to come, even if Brady just plays okay. If he plays great, that's another story altogether. But, I mean, you get to sign a, a to me, a viable above average starting quarterback, even given his flip last year for cash. You don't have to trade a draft pick away. You don't have to give up a first round pick. You don't have to do anything besides just pay money, which honestly the Tom Brady contract is not that onerous. You're guaranteeing two years, which, you know, could turn out poorly, I suppose. But for a guy who, again, I think with those weapons, with maybe one more additional on the offensive line, will have one of the best cores of talent around him in football. I think this is just an easy signing. I think you do this, even if it fails, even given the possibility it fails, I think you make this move 10 out of 10 times. And there's not a lot of moves you can say that about uh, in this free agent period. It's interesting. You describe, you describe Brady as a viable quarterback, which is obviously not the perception, even if, even if everyone realizes he's not going to be the same guy he was 10, 12 years right. ago. What, when you see Brady right now, what do you see? I see a guy who has the arm strength 
has not lost a ton of arms. Like that was never really like the, the core of his game, but a guy who can still make throws, a guy who still has the instincts, a guy who is physically capable of holding up, who's not getting injured or banged up or, you know, not losing a bunch of his arm strength during the season, which we see with a lot of older quarterbacks who do kind of lose it in their final couple of years. I think Peyton Manning being a good recent example, Brett Favre as well, where Brett Favre never got hurt. And then suddenly in his final year did get injured. Um, we're seeing Brady stay healthy. That's a good sign. And I think we saw a guy last year who had for most of the year below average offensive tackles, who had the worst tight end situation in football and who had one wide receiver who was healthy, who he trusted and Julian Edelman for most of the year. And by the end of the season, Edelman was injured. Muhammad Sanu was injured. They were still playing, but they were far less than 100%. Uh, and Kill Harry was still a rookie. There were so many times last year, I think uh, Greg Rosenthal was the one who pointed this out, where Brady would make throws, and it would be to nobody in particular, and he would kind of point at the spot afterwards, you know, saying, hey, you were supposed to be there. And at the end of the day, I trust Tom Brady in the situations over his receivers in terms of his knowledge of that offense. So I see a guy who wants to account for those things is still playing at a pretty high level. He's not the guy he was three years ago, but I think he's still a guy you can win a Super Bowl with. So Bruce Arians is, is the wild card here for me in this because yeah. he has so clearly been a bit of a quarterback whisperer, right? And what he did in Indianapolis that one year when he took over uh, for Chuck Pagano as the coach and what he did in Arizona to make that team really relevant and competitive. What, are you, what have you seen with the quarterback's key coaches that turns them into something special that Brady could be even better based on his age and sort of his physical skills right now. I think he creates a lot of big plays for his quarterbacks. I think he puts them in situations where they have, you know, sort of logical progressions, which is not always the case for some quarterbacks. I don't think Josh McDaniels is one of those guys, but I think he, he creates opportunities for big plays with his scheme. Now, the question that I think is most interesting here is, you know, Tom Brady, when you look through history, the history of Tom Brady is someone who, very rarely throws it downfield. He does occasionally, but it's not the core of his game. He wants to get the ball out quickly, he wants to get the ball out accurately, and he wants to move the chain. Bruce Arians, just about every single year, has been either the number one, number two, or number three coach in the league in terms of how frequently his quarterbacks throw downfield. They are, you know, it's the no risk it, no biscuit offense. That is the, the saying, that is what they do on offense. They want to get the ball downfield for big plays. Now, that sort of collision is going to be interesting because I think Brady has the physical ability to make those throws, but it's not his first choice. He does not want to hang on in the pocket for three or four seconds and take a hit to deliver a big play. So when we get to week one and week two, week three of that offense, is it going to be the Tom Brady Patriots offense where it's all quick game and getting the ball out you know, immediately to make easy completions and keep Tom Brady healthy? Or is it going to be the Bruce Arians offense of, you know, uh, seven step drop and, uh, you know, coming out of the shotgun and throwing the ball 20 yards downfield once every series. I don't know if one or the other is going to win. My suspicion is that it's going to be both of those offenses kind of coming together. But if that offense does struggle, I have to think Tom Brady's side is going to win. I don't know what you think. Well, I think it has to because you coach the talent that you have and you build the system right. around the talent you have. And well, Mike Evans is amazing. And Chris Godwin came on like gangbusters, especially when Evans was hurt. They can do anything. And Mike Evans certainly is a down-the-field player. He is a guy you want to get the ball too deep. Brady, like you said, he can still throw the ball. If he has to throw it 40 yards and can just throw it over the outside shoulder to where Mike Evans has an inch of space, he'll still be able to do that. Um, but at the end of the day, when they need to be successful, when they need that third-down conversion, 
it's going to be Brady finding a seam in the middle of the field, whether, mm-hmm. whether it's, whether it's like to the outside hash or across the middle, just because that's what he's great at. That's what he knows. And he's got more talent than he maybe has ever had at the wideout position with those two guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's and I wouldn't forget about the tight end situation. Again, Brady had, you know, the worst tight end situation in the league last year, bar none to me. And now he gets OJ Howard and Cameron Brate. And those guys are not superstars. And OJ Howard spent last year pretty much building a, a multifamily condominium inside Bruce Arians' doghouse. But I got to figure Tom Brady is going to make those tight ends better. And I think he's going to use them more frequently than Jameis Winston did. So I, I can see those guys being pretty underrated right now, given that. You know, that's going to be a place Tom Brady looks, I think, far more frequently than Jameis Winston looked outside of the red zone in years past. All right. So the other A that you gave was also in the NFC South. And the NFC South, which to my mind will never have any teams that anybody cares about because no one recognizes those logos. And as long as you have a Panthers logo and a Bucks logo, like as half of the division, it's never going to matter. But now they matter just because of their quarterbacks. And the other A that you gave, A minus, Drew Brees re-signing with the Saints. You basically gave the only A grades to the signings of two 40-plus quarterbacks. What's your theory there? I think if you look deeper into the grading file, you'll see that a certain Jets cornerback is given an A minus. But we'll leave that aside for another day. What else about Drew Brees is I just think, you know, again, sort of similar, you're adding a superstar quarterback at just the cost of some cap space. You're not paying a lot of money. You're not paying him a, a premium top of the market deal. You are not committing on a long-term contract. It's really only a one-year deal. That's just easy. You know, I think that's a move that the Saints have to make every single time. And if it's that sort of obvious of a move, I think that garners an A for me. And I think, you know, unlike Brady, Drew Brees didn't really seem to slip up, you know, slip last year. He had that uh, hand injury that cost him, I think, six games, but I think five and a half games. But you know, Drew Brees looked great. Otherwise, they lost in the playoffs. I don't think that was necessarily Drew Brees' fault. So I think he's positioned, unless he has a Brady-esque drop-off that we can't really anticipate, he's positioned to kind of play at a high level again in 2020. All right. For the next segment, we're going to bring in uh, Action Network football analyst and your brother in analytics genius, Chris Raybon. <laughs> and he is in love with Kyler Murray. He's in love with the Kyler Murray uh, now to DeAndre Hopkins. You gave one grade of F in your reviews so far for every move that's happened since February 15th. Do you know what the F is? The F is the Texan side of the DeAndre Hopkins grade, which is so bad that there were other contracts I thought about giving an F. Like I wanted to give the Jimmy Graham Bears contract an F, but in comparison, the Jimmy Graham deal, even though it's awful, is so much better than trading DeAndre Hopkins in that trade that I can't give anything else than that. There's just no way to make it fair. It's actually astonishing and no one can figure it out. Here's what I want to know though, because the Texans have had so much talent, like Mm -hmm. JJ Watt, Deshaun Watson, DeAndre Hopkins, like these are best in class players, right? What Mm -hmm. is Bill O'Brien so bad at? Everybody hates Bill O'Brien, but when you look at everything, what do you think he is so bad at it that makes this an impossible team, that makes it impossible for this team to move forward every year? I just think he has no sense of understanding what the market is. It's one thing to not want to re-sign Jadavian Clowney. I think they probably should have, but if you don't want to, that's your prerogative. I think you can justify not giving him a contract. That's not the issue. The issue is when you see players in his class, a Frank Clark or a D4 getting a first-round pick, a second-round pick, because they're traded at a point when it makes sense to make those trades as opposed to holding on to a player until the last possible second, hoping he's going to 
you know, give in and then trading him for a third round pick and two backup linebackers when he doesn't. With the Hopkins trade, it's not necessarily trading DeAndre Hopkins. I think it's a bad idea, but trading him for a second round pick and a running back whose contract is underwater in David Johnson, who probably the Texans should have got, you know, received a fourth round pick just to get that David Johnson's contract off the uh, Cardinals books. To not understand the, the value of the players you are trading, I think is unforgivable because it's just, this is a team that if you had kept that core together, I think they are a championship caliber core of, of talent. Now they have to all stay healthy. It doesn't necessarily work out, but you have this coach who sort of, you know, through different means, grasp power of the general manager position and who is running a team worse than probably the worst coach in your fantasy football league. I mean, <laughs> making trades that, that would be rejected. Like, I think I talked about this with, with Scott Van Pelt before we taped sports center. If you had a choice between that, like Bill O'Brien in your fantasy league or the guy who forgets to set his lineups uh, three times a season, you would choose the guy who forgets to set his lineups. Cause at least he's not ruining other teams by making crazy trades. Like it is, it's just, you have to have some level of credibility and some level of authority. And when every other person who is a fan of your team or who looks at your team is sitting here saying, they can't understand the trades you're making. I think it really kind of serves that idea that you're a football man and you have this experience. It really cuts at the core of just how little Bill O'Brien knows what he's doing when it comes to the GM job. As a fan, it kind of bums me out because I look at Deshaun Watson, I look at J.J. Watt, and those are guys who, to me, become really sympathetic figures because their primes are going to be lost to bad. I mean, J.J. Watt's prime is already lost but their primes have been lost to bad coaching and talent mm-hmm. mismanagement. And as a fan, it is incredibly frustrating. I want Deshaun Watson to win so bad. And I think when you look at this, how much does this hurt his development? Oh, I mean, it's, it's you know, astronomical because not only is it trading DeAndre Hopkins and replacing him with a terrible Randall Cobb contract, it's also, you know, they've traded multiple first-round picks away. He's not going to get the help he needs in the draft in years to come. But the whole infrastructure is broken. I mean, it's like trying to win a car race on a road that has potholes every 10 feet that are going to swallow your car. I mean, you can maybe get away with it, but you'd much rather have a smooth, you know, a smooth pavement to drive on. And I don't trust Bill O'Brien to to smooth over those holes or fill those holes with anything uh, besides trading future draft picks away. All right. We're going to come back for another segment in a second, but first my favorite Long Islander, a man who once, once ran for mayor of his hometown, but blew off the debate to go to Lollapalooza. True story. Michael Leboff is coming at us with another charming gambling story. If you bet on tennis, you know how frustrating it can be when a player retires from a match, meaning he's hurt and needs to quit the match in the middle of it. Some books will grade retirements as losses for the injured players some will grade them as pushes and some it depends on if a full set has been completed the rules are all over the place for my particular book that i was betting on back in the 2018 u.s open the rule was if a player retires no matter how close it was to the end of the match the bet would be graded as a push sometimes that would be good and sometimes that would be bad i swear that i've been bit by that rule more often than i've been aided Anyways, we go to the 2018 U.S. Open, and I have a bet on Paolo Lorenzi versus Kyle Edmund. Lorenzi was about 7.5 to 1, and I would be in attendance for this match. 
if you've ever been to the U.S. Open, you know this, but if you haven't, you should check it out. It's an amazing place to be a better or be a fan if you love tennis, especially in the first couple rounds because the way the tournament is set up, there are all these little side courts and you can get so close to the action. So we go to find the side court for Lorenzi versus Edmonds. By the time we get there, Lorenzi is down a set, but he looks like he's going to win the second set, which he does. And I'm pumped. I'm in this like little corner with my buddy and we're cheering for Lorenzi big time and it is bloody hot out there the sun is beating out on you there's nowhere to really escape the heat that's when I started to notice oh man and Edmonds looks like he's struggling a bit Lorenzi starts wiping him just beating him handily he goes up two sets to one and he's limping everywhere and at that point I realize I need to start rooting against Lorenzi because Edmund looks like he's going to retire and if that happens my seven and a half to one surefire winner just goes up in flames so with Edmund kind of hobbling around the court I took it upon myself to really motivate him to stay in this match so me and my friend we start cheering hard for Edmund we're telling him to dig deep and to not give up and basically giving him a espy speech about why he should stay in the match and it's bad to give up even as hard hurt as he is the fans are here to see you Kyle don't give up and he hung in there not only did he lose with the class of a British warrior, but he won me some good scratch. And because of his heart and his grit, Kyle Edmund and me, you know, we're good for life. Like, I, that guy could do no wrong in my book. He's a true warrior and a true sportsman. Thank you, Kyle. Okay, we're back. It's time for the next thing. The next thing. For this, we are going gambling heavy, and I want to bring in... Action Network, senior football analyst, Chris Raybon, to join me and Bill. Raybon, Bill gave the Tom Brady signing an A. He gave it an A. It's one of two A's he gave out. The odds for the Bucs to win the Super Bowl went from 50 to 1 to 25 to 1. Raybon, good bet or bad bet? First of all, thanks for having me, guys. I enjoyed uh, being a fly on the wall to the earlier conversation. <laughs> I would say that it's a solid bet. For the last, since they started recording DVOA, you can look at the year-end DVOA results and essentially eliminate all the teams that don't really have a shot at winning the Super Bowl just by looking at uh, their overall ranking. It's usually 13 or higher, over 95% of the teams. And then they've, they've had to have at least a top eight finish in one of the three phases. And interestingly enough, the Bucks just miss out on that cutoff for, for 13. So they're right at 14. Mm -hmm. And they just, you know, they, they just sneak in um, with their, with the, you know, in one of the phases. So it's tough. It's, it's, it's not, it's not something where I would say don't bet on them. And I could definitely see, uh, you know, Tom Brady weeding this team to the top of the NFC. I think a better bet would be for the conference. Uh, because mm -hmm. I think the AFC is a, it, to me anyway, it just looks like a lot stronger of a conference at the top with the Kansas City Chiefs, the Baltimore Ravens. So I, I would bet on them to win the NFC rather than going all the way. Burnwell, mm -hmm. you got thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, obviously, I think the biggest concern for the Bucks is not necessarily uh, their level of talent, but I think it's the Saints being positioned in the same division just a a dominant team i think I, I might take a step backwards this year a little bit but still a team that you would expect to make the playoffs even if drew Brees gets hurt for a chunk of the season because that's what happened last year um maybe that's a little too short-sighted but uh the bucks defense is incredibly underrated to chris's point they were fifth in defensive dvoa last year so when you see 
their raw numbers, they look awful by the raw numbers, it was because James Winston threw a ton of pick sixes and put them in a ton of bad situations with turnovers. So this is already a very legit defense. It was really the offense and the special teams that held the Bucks back last year. So you would figure a, a improvement from the offensive break. It doesn't have to be necessarily the 2007 Patriots, but uh, I think they're a playoff team at the very least to me. So, um, you know, if you can get, it would probably be what, 12 to one or so for them to win the NFC. Uh, that's hardly out of the question to me. By the way, the uh, total on Raybon King Geek mentioning DVOA was about point was about point five seconds. So somehow, somehow we even managed to go under in that particular bet. Bill, here's what I love about getting you guys together. You lived in mm-hmm. Vegas for a year. You moved there. I remember I when you moved there when Grantland started because it was the same year I took over as editor in chief of the magazine in 2011. Mm-hmm. How much did you know about betting then? And just like summarize your experiences trying to live in Vegas. You were on the leading edge of this, right? And so trying to live in Vegas incorporating analytics, trying to think about betting on football. What was that experience like? I mean, I knew nothing. So that was very helpful. I should have probably learned a little bit more before I actually worked my way out there. But, you know, just as the season went on, just figuring out, you know, where there might be some some margins for value. I think at the time, the, you know, I, I was looking at the uh, the teaser value for for, you know, moving lines over the two key numbers of three and seven. And before I moved there, I had no idea that that made any sense, that was valuable. But by the time I left, and not only did I know, you know, where to, or, or how valuable that could possibly be, but also which books had, at that time, still had profitable, uh, you know, profitable odds for those six-point teasers. So that's something that would not have even occurred to me before I lived there, but I did end up figuring it out by the time I got there. And, you know, just, I think, getting a sense of understanding what actually moves lines in terms of, injuries and stuff um you know how 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 you know how lines can be slow to move based on certain things especially towards the end of the season when you have more injuries and and things are uh you know sort of more in flux when you have guys who might be playing might not be playing based on you know how serious their team is about winning so you know i think trying to find little advantages came to mind for me in a way that i would not have anticipated before i got there but in the long run i mean you know i I wasn't by any means uh you know, winning at a high level or, or close to it. I, you know, I, I just learned a lot about how people who are more successful than me uh, approach football and approach the idea of betting on football. So you guys both, this is really interesting to me. You guys both saw an angle where you could use what you understand about analytics to analyze football, which has mm-hmm. become a massive sort of part of the way we talk about it. But I also think like, Raybon, you should talk a little bit about your experience because we certainly haven't talked about it on the podcast much, like how you transitioned what you were doing in the past to what you're doing now and how the numbers give you credibility because otherwise you're just a dude talking about football who never played it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, for those that don't know, I was, I graduated college during the heart of the recession, uh, came from Syracuse. There were um, not a lot of jobs out there. I was lucky enough to land one doing accounting, but was so bored. And every day I would just um, kind of do fantasy football on the side. And one day I just sent a email to Numberfire, like vehemently disagreeing with one of their takes. Um, and it was, I, you know, wrote them. It was all analytics based. I think their, their take was that Ahmad Bradshaw 
um, was going to sink Andrew Luck's fantasy season for some reason, <laughs> which made no sense to me whatsoever on, on a you know number of levels. Number one, running backs just aren't going to have that big of an impact, period. Um, and so, you know, whatever not, started writing for free and ended up getting into the fantasy industry. And I, I say to this day, Chad, that, you know, even though a lot of people are going to know me for, you know, fantasy and the top five accuracy finish, like I, to, to this day, my number one source of pride, I think, in, in this industry is still maintaining a 56% uh, betting winning percentage in, uh, <laughs> in our, in the action network app, because I think that was something that it, it just seemed very daunting and very challenging um, from the outside. Yeah. It was something I hadn't done a lot of, so, you know, I think just like you and uh, just being able to kind of put these, use these analytics and these numbers and, and have success um, was really a, was really a source of pride. Do you know what my biggest source of pride is? Uh, betting every NFL game during this past NFL season in the Action Network app uh, and going 141, 112, and three, winning at a 56% clip. And the majority of what I did was just listen to your podcast and then make those bets. And so uh, I almost, I probably should pay you a commission. Instead, I'm just going to take all the money for myself. Question. Simple. Uh, it's it's nice, right? That's that's how I lead, Barnwell. You may remember that. Um, <laughs> All you guys do is apply analytics to analysis. You've mentioned DVOA and like Bar and Raybon, you apply a lot of it to betting. When you're going through all the data, what's working and what doesn't? How do you separate, you know, to quote Nate Silver, the signal from the noise? Barnwell, you go first. I think just in terms of hyper-specializing context, you know, where I think you have those classic things of, oh, well, Andy Dalton or Kirk Cousins can't win in prime time. And it's like, okay, well, you know, what were those games like? Who were they playing? Because typically primetime games are tougher competition. So we just, you know, if you're adjusting for the competition, does that really bear out? Is he playing all that poorly? You know, and, and just the small samples of, you know, this guy's great at home, this guy's great on the road. You know, I think just applying some broader context to, okay, you know, is that true for him in multiple seasons? Is that true for, you know, other players of his position? Is that a meaningful split or is that just noise to your point? So I think, you know, just, just being willing to test stuff. I don't think it has to be, you know, the, you know, it doesn't have to be a machine learning algorithm. It doesn't have to be the most complex thing, but just in terms of having a quizzical mind, understanding, you know, okay, hey, well, here's this trend I think is a thing, or here's this trend that I'm hearing is a thing. How valuable is it? And then if other people believe it's a thing, how can I, you know, possibly, you know, put it in context and make money off of it to, you know, put it in the appropriate context of it not being a meaningful thing. It goes right into what Bill said about relevant samples. And I think a key is thinking in terms of probabilities, thinking probabilistically. So uh, if you have a hypothesis or something you've tested that's you know, supposed to be right 75% of the time and it's wrong one or two times, you know, don't go and write it off because of, you know, it went 0 for 2. You know, that, that's something that's going to happen even you know, in the best models that would go 75%. And I think in the NFL, one of the key things for me is always being aware of adjusting for how the league is changing because a lot of people and I, this happens a lot during draft analysis is people look at these they, they take these long-term data from decades ago and they say well uh, a, a wide receiver has never done x y and z in college and gone on to do x y z in the nfl and it's like well in the last five years the amount of routes run by like the third ride receiver has ballooned teams are playing totally different offenses uh you know guys are getting on the field 
you know, sooner. There's there, there's X amount more percentage of passes. Completion percentages are you know this much higher. Interception percentages are this much lower. And a lot of people aren't adjusting, I think, quickly enough for some of these trends that have uh, kind of jumped up in the last five and ten years since I think since the uh, early part of the decade when they, they changed when the, with the rule changes for the uh, defensive holding and whatnot and then kind of going forward since then so that's a big thing for me is just being sure to always kind of keep fresh data and not going back too far and being able to kind of test out when to when to kind of apply some cutoffs or, or, or weight the the older data less mm-hmm. like Raybon I think about your take on Aaron Rodgers sort of late in the season and through the playoffs explain to people what your take was because you were ahead of the curve and that's what the analysis was telling you my Aaron Rodgers hot take, I didn't think it should have been that hot, but essentially he was a uh, below average, uh, you know, clearly below average quarterback had been so for a number of years. And um, it wasn't because of his supporting cast. It was exacerbated by his supporting cast. He was a guy that was willing, essentially willing to uh, take the safe and conservative completion over, uh, you know, messing up his interception uh <laughs> Great. And it, it turned the Packers offense into a very, uh, you know, below average offense that, re, that re, and team that relied on everything else. It relied on a running game. It relied on a defense. It relied on, you know, really good receivers to get by. And once you took those receivers out, you only left them with one. Uh, you kind of saw the, the, you know, what the result of that. And you saw them get banged by San Francisco, which I mean, I would have put any amount of money on, on, on that result happening um probably like 75 times out of 100 just because there was you just looked up and down that San Francisco defense and you said there's no way Aaron Rodgers is going to move this ball consistently if it, against a team that can get pressure without blitzing it and use seven coverage and so that that was um I didn't think it should have been a hot take but you know name value is so big in the NFL that uh, it ended up being one 2018 the San Francisco 49ers had a minus 25 turnover differential which is bad and everyone knows how important turnover differential is uh, they had two interceptions, which is the fewest of any team in NFL history for a 16-game season. That's also bad and does not seem likely to recur. So when I'm doing my research before the year, I typically do a column where I write about the five teams most likely to improve and the five teams most likely to decline. And even in April, uh, I wrote that column in July, but even in April, I tweeted the Niners were going to make the playoffs if they got a quasi-healthy season from Jimmy Garoppolo, just because when you look through history, the team's turnover differential has virtually no predictive value to the following season. I think you have rare exceptions here and there, but they get swamped. Teams that are at the extremes almost always uh, dramatically improve their turnover potential if it sucked the year before or vice versa. Uh, if they had a great turnover differential, it tends to bounce off. So the Niners had the worst turnover, turnover differential in football, which was extremely likely to improve given that they did so many investments in their defense, had so much talent they were adding to their roster. And that was without uh, D4 for most of the year, by the way, in the long run. I figured going from your... Uh, you know, a, a third-string quarterback, uh, I guess the combination of Dick Mullins and G.J. Beathard to Jimmy Garoppolo for probably 12, 14 games was kind of my estimate, is a pretty significant upgrade. So the Niners were available at 40-1 to 1 to win the Super Bowl for the year. Uh, that was a nice little opportunity. Was able to hedge with the Chiefs once they got to the Super Bowl itself. But there was a lot of opportunity with the Niners to win the division, to win the NFC, to win the Super Bowl. Niners futures were a, a pretty significant value, even though you know, obviously things have gone broken slightly differently, but I think given their talent level and level of play, it became pretty clear they were much better than the market value before the year. And the biggest reason why was that their turnover torrential was never going to be as bad as it was in 2018. Ooh, that's good. That's really, really good. 
as an exercise to the listener, go try and find the team that has a the worst tone of Richard football in 2019. And then maybe think about that team possibly improving in 2020. Well, why can't you just tell us right now? Like when you look at all the free agency moves, you've graded every single one of them. Raybon has been putting out more content about how to measure player props and fantasy rankings against the free agency moves for both of you. Bill, you go first. Do you see a team right now that is undervalued? Do you see a team that is your Niners of 2020? I don't think there's anyone who's quite as obvious of a value, unfortunately, uh, at that level. I would say the Chargers are probably the closest thing, but they're also the Chargers. We don't know what they're going to get out of their quarterback play, which that can swamp a lot of what I would typically see in the numbers. I think a classic example is the Broncos when they were replacing Tim Tebow with Peyton Manning. The numbers said the Broncos are going to decline because so much about that Tim Tebow season was unsustainable and lucky. It wins in close games, wins in overtime. They got Peyton Manning, and because Peyton Manning is so much better than Tim Tebow, that swamped all the the numbers for the previous year because the, the team was so different with Peyton Manning at quarterback. So I might have pointed to a team like the Chargers, but I would be concerned that Tyrod Taylor, who I like, you know, is not as good of a quarterback as Philip Rivers is, and that could be something that holds them back. So there's not that sort of dramatically obvious team to me. I would say maybe the Bengals would be a team that I think are going to take a step forward that's maybe bigger than people think, but I don't think they're going to be a Super Bowl team. All right, Barnwell cleverly evaded that question by saying the Bengals yeah. will be better than people think. Raybon, who's your undervalued team right now? Any market? The New York Giants. The New York Giants yeah. uh, tied for the worst turnover differential in the league, mm -hmm. so we got that going for us with the Chargers. I think Daniel Jones far exceeded expectations and even show you know showed some flashes to where um he takes a normal second year leap uh reduces some of the the, the turnovers and, and whatnot i think you have an explosive uh, supporting cast around him and listen you have an unknown a, a, you have some unknowns in the coaching staff with some guys who i think are better suited to their roles after right now than they've been as, as leaders of teams and so you mm -hmm. have this kind of upside i think all around where you know th the giants are going to be looked at as a, a team that's not you know, expected to do much, but it doesn't take a lot, especially in this division where you have the Washington Redskins, which are beatable twice a year. You have the Eagles, which have shown even when they make the playoffs, they're beatable twice a year. Uh, and then you mm -hmm. have the Cowboys who are this kind of, you know, unknown now going to a new coaching staff. So uh, I'd look for the New York Giants. I think a, a, a improvements on defense, which easier to improve year over year regresses to the mean more often than not than, than offense does. I think you're going to see a little bit of a natural regression on, on defense for the Giants. I think they yep. Barnwell, you agree? Yeah, yeah I think so. I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't put them as a Super Bowl team by any means, no. but um, you know, could they be a seven, eight win team? Yeah, I don't think that's out of the question. Okay, guys, it's time for our final segment, Another Thing. Another Thing. This one is going to be rapid fire. Are you ready? Both of you will answer. This is called the, uh, I'm, I'm naming this the um, inaugural Bill O'Brien rapid fire question. The quarterback you love to bet, but whose coach makes you nervous to pull the trigger? Maybe Dak Prescott. I mean, wow. we'll, we'll see with Mike McCarthy. But I would Already say Already against Mike McCarthy. I mean, I have experience with Mike McCarthy. I've seen what's happened in the past. He cost, you know, Aaron Rodgers now is different from Aaron Rodgers six years ago. He cost Aaron Rodgers two Super Bowls with his decision-making, I think. So I, I'm inclined to, until I see otherwise, bet against Mike McCarthy. But Mike McCarthy loves analytics now. He's a changed man. Yeah, I've heard that one before. I believe it, believe it when I actually see it in practice, I will say. Raybon. Teddy Bridgewater, 28-7 career as a starter against the spread, but I don't know 
what to make of his new coach, but love betting on Teddy Bridgewater. All right. Mm -hmm. I call this, that's a good one. I call this the uh, first ever DeAndre Hopkins uh, rapid fire question. The wide receiver will soon be as disposable as running backs. That is my hot take. Wide receiver will soon be as disposable as running backs as a position. Raybon, you're first. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it, it will not be as disposable as running backs because th the whole premise of that is that it's because passing is more efficient and um, that is not going to change, even if the individual components of that aren't quite as important as, let's say, a quarterback, because you have four to five of them running routes on every play. That doesn't mean that that wide receivers are going to go the way of running backs. No. Barnwell. Wide receivers could be less valuable than they might seem right now. I could see the top of the market, maybe not hitting the peaks you might expect, but no, running backs are pretty much a waste of time to care about. Wide receivers are not. The Pats always needed Bill Belichick more than Tom Brady. Barnwell, yes or no? No, Tom Brady is quite valuable. And we've seen Bill Belichick without a quarterback and it has not always been very effective. So I think I read about this a few years ago. I think it came on the side of Brady, hopefully. But yeah, I, I would pick Brady over Belichick. Wow. You you saw the Browns with, with without Tom Brady. You saw... The Matt Castle year with the greatest team, you know, you know, in 16 and 0 the year before, they were 11 and 5. Granted, they should have made the playoffs, probably. It's a pretty rare thing. But Tom Brady has been carrying this team. When you look at, at DVA, you look at the advanced metrics when it comes to how good that defense has been for the better part of the last decade. It was only last year that the defense kind of held up its end of the bargain. Bill Belichick turned Vinny Testaverde into a near pro bowler when he was in Cleveland. Raybon, Belichick more than Brady, yes or no? I'm going to disagree with Bill here. I'm going to go yes, only because I think you have all the uh, advantages that Belichick brings to your organization. And Belichick has okay. shown adept at finding quarterbacks other than Brady that have gone on to have success. I mean, you look at Jimmy Garoppolo, you look at the success they had with Matt Castle uh, in 2008 or nine, I believe it was. So um, that I think that's enough for, to give him the slight edge. But quarterback is always going to be the number one thing that separates teams, then coaches. Um, but in this case, I'll say that just because he could probably find another quarterback. Burnwell, Nick Foles will be the starting quarterback for the Bears in 2020. At some point, yes. I don't think week one. I think this is an organization that wants to believe Mitch Trubisky is the guy. I think that's one of the reasons they didn't push for a better option at quarterback. I think they want Nick Foles to be just good enough to make them think that Mitch Trubisky is still their best option. So I think Mitch Trubisky starts week one, but we will see Nick Foles before week 17. I'm going the opposite. I think Nick Foles will oh, wow. be the start. I think Foles will be the starter week one. If you look at the advanced metrics, he was slightly better than Trubisky in pretty much every category. And I think they would rather a, a quarterback that just can, you know, run the offense, get the ball out. However, I don't think he is substantially better than Trubisky uh, to necessarily hold him off all season long, when you, especially when you account for the um, uh, uh, rushing upside that Trubisky has had at times. So I think they'll call, there'll be calls for Trubisky at some point, and it will kind of be like the Minshew uh, full situation where eventually uh, the team gives it. I love how you guys debate each other. It's like, this is how analytics guys, whoa, that's crazy. I'm going to, I'm going to politely disagree. This is not like, we're not talking first take here, guys. Like we're, we're only impolite when it comes to you, Chad. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, all right. My last question. When do you normally go to bed on Sunday night, Monday mornings during the NFL season? Uh, as someone who has recently picked up duties as a podcast guest on ESPN Daily, which is taped around midnight on Sundays, uh, once that started this year, I think my average bedtime was 6.30 in the morning, Monday morning. Ooh. 
Yeah, it's not great. I, I I've been that. there. I, I have been that. there. These days for me, it's usually not too long after the game ends because I am so burnt out because I usually stay up all night leading into Sunday. So the Saturday mm, night, I'm usually up all night doing rankings, you know, kind of updating models, getting bets in, prop bets, all these different things. And then I try to stay up through all the games and then I just kind of crash. What I like about this is there's a good 48 hours where neither of you are sleeping. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> which I appreciate. I appreciate you both uh, doing your best, sleeping your least to get out information for the rest of the world to consume. That's what we need in this time of coronavirus epidemics. I'll try do. my best. Bill Barnwell, Chris Raybon, thank you guys both for joining the favorites. Before we go, as always, we have some inspiring words from our CEO, Mr. Patrick Keen. No, God, please, no, 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 no! This has been The Favorites from the Action Network. Download from Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. Subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe. Until next time, love you.